This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are at last to break down the finale of Survivor 42. Break down the finale may be kind of a misleading way of framing it, Dom. I think we're here to just kind of wrap up on season 42. It's been a couple of weeks at this point since the finale has aired. I don't think we need to spend a ton of time going through like the nitty gritty details on it, but certainly I think... uh, a, a very meaningful conversation can hopefully at least be had here about just the big picture on season 42, what we thought of how everything all played out, uh, the the winner in particular. So spoiler alert for anyone who has not yet seen the finale of season 42. Uh, we are going to be getting into all of that, obviously. But Dom, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. And yeah, as you say, nothing will be broken down here. Uh, No analysis, no details, uh, just vibes for the next few hours. Yes, indeed. Uh, So before we get in, I would say, to the specific players, I know, again, it's been a little while at this point since the finale has aired. Uh, The exit interviews with Rob and others are starting to, uh, like the long form ones are starting to trickle out. And I think we're in kind of... uh, an awkward middle ground along those lines where you've heard in great detail from a couple of people on the cast, but still have plenty more left to get into. But I want to begin before we get into the specifics of any person in particular with an area that I feel like has been at least somewhat contentious is the wrong word, but I, I feel like I'm seeing and hearing a lot of people all over the map, more so than I generally do just after a season of Survivor has ended, in in terms of how they feel about the season overall, just kind of in the grand scheme of Survivor. And I would generally say that most people seem to be pretty big, if not very big fans of this season, but I've certainly heard dissenting opinions mixed in from some others. And I know, Dom, uh, you are not afraid of potentially being a little bit of an edgelord when it comes to your Survivor takes. So where do you land on just how good this season was overall? Well, I, it sounds like I'm going to enjoy being part of the uh, the overwhelming majority slash consensus here. I thought it was a great season. Um, and I don't know if that's grading on a curve. I don't know if the right comparison here is the first 40 seasons or if it's uh, in the new era of Survivor, what will the average season look like and how will this stack up compared to that? Because I think on, on that basis, this is kind of the high watermark for what we can expect or should expect from modern survivor in the 40s uh where we're dropping the four we're keeping whatever the other number is at this point Uh, i think 42 uh definitely more so than 41 where i I think there was a lot of uh disagreement over how well that one would go down i I think this one i have not seen those dissenting opinions that you mentioned i've seen only positive opinions for the most part and uh the only 
question within that is how positive are they? Is it a good season or is it a great season? I, I think this is like bearing in mind, we are going to have a lot of these various twists. We're going to have uh, this approach to casting in place. We're going to have this focus on people who have seen the show before, who are very excited to be on the show. Uh, they are embracing super fans to a you know, unprecedented degree with all of the uh, features of modern survivor in mind. I think this is like the best we can realistically hope for. And I don't mean that in the kind of uh dabbing with faint praise way that it might come across. If you just put it in those terms. I am, I believe right on board with pretty much all of that. Uh, and yeah, the two major factors for me and shout out to, I believe it was uh Christian Hubicki, flagging up these two elements as well as being kind of like the most vital things to get right these days on Survivor uh, by a wide margin, as far as I'm concerned, are the cast and the way that the story is edited. And I think in the case of Survivor 42, this was a historically fantastic cast uh, full of people who were out there knowing what they wanted to do, trying their hardest at all times to win, being good sports uh, for the most part, uh, with potentially a couple exceptions sprinkled in there along the way. Uh, and essentially everything I ever want out of a cast. And I know we said the same thing about season 41 as well. And that alone leaves me tremendously optimistic about just what the future of Survivor could look like. And on top of that, I would say, unlike 41, we got a much more balanced edit, potentially also a historically balanced edit here. And that may not even be hyperbolic in this case. I think, like, statistically, if you were to break it down, I don't remember the last time we've seen, uh, like, confessional counts and just kind of overall screen time as evenly distributed as it was on this season. And furthermore, the Marianne story where it looks in the early days, like maybe she's rubbing some people the wrong way. She's kind of missing things strategically that we would expect to be never ever seeing out of the person they know is the eventual winner of this season when they're piecing together how they want to tell this story on top of a lot of really compelling kind of decoy winner edits. And those uh, players crashing and burning maybe overstating it in certain cases but certainly uh not fulfilling the conventional kind of result that the people who historically have gotten that sort of glowing treatment from the edit tend to achieve when the season is all said and done i love that combination of those two things so as far as a great cast and a really balanced and well-told story Everything about season 42 makes me very hopeful for Survivor uh, continuing this trend that I feel like we have seen in the new era of really nailing the important things. And I know uh, these last few episodes in particular, there may have been some rants and diatribes and things of that nature uh, about the influx of twists, but I, I fully grant that. Plenty of the twists have worked out uh, and been interesting to me and at the very least created some compelling content along the way. And, you know, when you're 22 years and at this point, 40 plus seasons into a franchise with this many eyeballs on it, I 
fully understand why the producers feel compelled to do whatever they can to keep things kind of fresh and unpredictable. And we, we can save the complaining about the times that that goes wrong for a different podcast. Cause I really do feel like this season is worthy uh, of a lot of praise when it's all said and done and hopefully can be kind of uh, a new standard for what we are meant to expect from this new era there. And, uh, and, and that's exactly what I mean when I say that, if you compare this to just a random season selected from the first 30 something uh, before we kind of made this transition to uh, the, the present day, then, yeah, you would dog this one points for having a lot of just unnecessary twists and all of this random stuff thrown in there. But that is just the world that we live in now. And it, it almost feels unfair to 42 and everything that was good about it to uh, be knocking it down for stuff which is just going to be afflicting every modern day survivor season uh, right so i i think if you were you know in those ever-present threads of hey i my my friend slash colleague slash partner uh, just got into survivor what season would uh would you recommend to them first then yeah if you're weighing up 42 compared to some of the usual candidates from from seasons past that would come into the equation there but as it is uh like I accept that that some of that stuff is just priced in now, and that's that's the way it's going to be, I'm afraid. So we we're just going to have to grit our teeth and and bear it. But uh, coming back to the point about the the editing, we we should put some numbers on this, I think. And this has all the usual caveats about just like raw confessional account doesn't mean everything, and that it doesn't tell you what the content of those confessionals are, and so on and so forth. But even just looking at 42 versus 41 for the final count. The, the contrast there is very stark. And, uh, you know, on this season, there really isn't anyone on the order of, like, a Heather, for example, with 13 total confessionals over 13 total episodes. Um, and you don't have this pretty stark imbalance uh, between, like, the winner and other people surrounding the winner. Uh, like, this one feels very sensible. And I feel like if you, if you scrambled the order here and it, you had someone try to put it back in its rightful place, I think their impulse would be, well, I'm going to roughly rank in order of, in ascending order, right? So we'll start with like Jackson with his two confessionals at the bottom and work our way out to the top. And if you did that, you would get something pretty well resembling the actual boot order. And uh, there, there are certain like clusters in here where, for example, uh, we go two for Jackson and then six for the next four boots, uh, interestingly, up you Zach through uh, Swati, and then Daniel gets 16, Diddy gets 14, and then you have this cluster of Chanel, Roxroy, Tori, all in the, the 20 range, and then you have uh, Jonathan and Romeo, so third and fourth places, as well as Drea and Omer, so, or uh, High and Drea, excuse me, in eighth and seventh in the, the mid-30s, and then you have the mid-40s group, which includes Marianne, and then the one outlier, effectively, is Mike with 57, but this is another case where the numbers maybe don't tell the full story because you have Jonathan who by raw confessional count was the least visible in that sense of the entire final eight. And yet he still had a very substantial presence in the season uh, just as a character, as someone who was being referred to by other players and was in the thick of things. Uh, and so again, bearing in mind the numbers aren't everything, the numbers are pretty good. And then when you, when you, uh, or when you dive into the actual content there, I think that tells a pretty good story too. So uh, th there's no real imbalance there to speak of. And that is shocking given 
both recent trends and also going back, I don't know how long at this point. Uh, where would you say the first complaints about imbalanced editing really started to kick in? Uh, so I think there's a bit of a difference between imbalanced editing and the like overwhelming glowing winner edit uh where one person just looks like so head and shoulders above the rest of the field that it kind of takes a lot of the suspense out if you are even slightly paying attention to why they might be showing us what they are showing us but without like a firm set of numbers in front of me i first of all think that when we've looked into this in the past as things pertain to 42, like along the way, the only season that was even like as in the same pantheon in terms of overall kind of balance and distribution for airtime among all of the like active cast members, I think was literally Survivor Borneo, like the literal first season. <laughs> well, and they just... Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a few different things there. So you have the, the, the co-wrong style edit, right? Where, the, the numbers themselves, I remember being not that bad, but like it was pretty clear if you were just watching the show exactly what was going to happen at the end. Um, and, and then there's the just I've looked at the the chart here and oh, dear God, what's happening of like the Samura heroes versus villains era where it's like, you know, one person is getting 1.5 times the, the number of confessionals of the next highest person who in turn is also an order of magnitude above the rest. Um and then there's, I would say, like, the earliest complaints, which I would, I think kicked in around, like, Fiji, Cook Islands kind of time. And I think we, we covered some of this in our Fiji rewatch on, on Patreon, right? Where um, it was, like, half of the cast is effectively, they're just NPCs in this wider mm -hmm. saga. Like, we, we're given no reason to care about who they are, or in some cases, be able to name them when the season is all said and done. Um, and so even in like the early teens, I guess, you were seeing some of these trends starting to develop. And then in their, in their own way, the 20s and the 30s were, were plagued by this to, to varying degrees. And 42 is almost like this oasis in the desert compared to a lot of that. And it makes what happened with 41 even more puzzling in one sense, because with that, you could at least try and give it some kind of leeway where... Uh, look that they're figuring stuff out and they're rebooting the show effectively and so this incredible anomaly of erica and the entire luvu tribe getting the the premier treatment that they did maybe that's just uh teething pains as the show discovers its identity again clearly that's not the case clearly this approach and this crew is able to get the job done and do it very well and so what what the hell was going on over there i have been wondering that very loudly and annoyingly on these podcast airwaves for quite some time now as well but it's water under the bridge as far as i'm concerned uh if this can be not even necessarily the new standard i don't expect every single season to be this well balanced necessarily although that would be awesome but and this is such an outlier uh, as far as like stacking it up to any kind of even remotely recent season of Survivor that by far, I think when it's all said and done, uh, like years from now, when I'm looking back on Survivor 42, I hope uh, one of the things that I'm most grateful for about this season is that it ushered in this new era of the way that they tell the stories there and Dom uh, to use uh, a specific example here 
which kind of returns to the idea of like one person looking really glowing or a couple people early on really making it, it's very clear that all right these two three four people are going to be your main characters and everyone else will get to you when we get to you if we do ever get to you uh we missed the first couple of weeks of covering this season and began after episode three in the form of a must-lose draft of those remaining in the game. Uh, with the number one pick in that draft, I believe you picked Daniel. And with my number one pick in that draft, I picked Marianne uh, mm. as the person who definitely was not going to win this season of Survivor. And that is something that I will definitely not be forgetting anytime soon and am so grateful for having had that opportunity here in the first place. Uh, and I was actually thinking just before we came on air and uh, we'll get, we'll certainly get much more into Marianne in a little bit here. Uh, but as far as like that sort of edit dynamic is concerned, I don't know why it took me this long to think of this example. Cause it's such a good one and a classic one. And one that I'm sure every virtually everyone hearing us uh, is going to remember, but that kind of, this person early on is going to be looking like someone who's kind of on the outs with their tribe uh, at the very least, but over time is going to emerge as like a consensus kind of fan favorite. And when the finale rolls around, a huge percentage of the audience is going to be really, really pulling for this person to win. I feel like we got that story perfectly with Kathy Vavrick O'Brien all the way back in the Marquesa, uh, as she would put it. And I don't know why we abandoned that for so long. And I know that we do have plenty of cases of the kind of fish out of water, finding their footing and becoming a, a lovable rooting interest and getting that kind of growth narrative. But I don't feel like we've seen that actually work out to be the eventual winner of a season. And I love that they are finally comfortable with having that be the case of actively making it look like someone is off to a potentially very kind of rocky start within the game only for it to ultimately go their way. I am ecstatic that we finally live in a world where that sort of thing is possible. So tangential question, which you have no way of answering, but I'm going to ask you uh, regardless, uh, does the whole Marquesas, uh, Marquesa thing map onto the Kansas versus Arkansas, uh, <laughs> whatever that is? I see where you're going with that. And for the record, I don't know how to pronounce Marquesas. Uh, maybe we're like bastardizing the pronunciation. And if we were to go find someone more familiar with the area and its history, Kathy Vavrick O'Brien may be dead right about how, how all of that works. I, I just go with what Jeff says. Sure. Um, but... I, what, do we have any similar pronunciations uh, for token cheens, where that T becomes like a CH sound? Are there any other words that you've ever heard where that's a thing? Or is that uh, like a South American thing that I'm just totally ignorant on? I, I feel like the, the token cheens thing, it's, it, it's, it reminds me of how uh, there's that joke about like, Americans will go to Europe and come back saying Barcelona with a very mm. like exaggerated lisp where just showing that you in theory know how to pronounce it is like a mark of being cultured or something. Yeah, I, I think that may be in play. Uh, like I buy that that's genuinely how they pronounce it, but I do 
wonder if they had filmed this season uh, in that particular area of Spain, if Jeff would be one such American pronouncing it Barcelona. Yes, I, I can give a, a very heartwarming update, which is that Marianne has apparently now watched those final six episodes of Token Gene. <laughs> so uh, rest assured that I am sure her, her love of Stephen Fishback is even more uh, complete now. Absolutely, yes. Uh, all right, so I think it sounds like we're both very happy uh, with the overall presentation and results of Survivor 42 here. So let's dive into some of the specifics and Dom... Uh, of course, the place we need to begin is with Marianne, our ultimate winner here. It's real. It's happening. It happened. I still, at least part of me, has a hard time believing we live in a world where we can have such nice things and that someone who has put uh, you know, so much of herself into the reality TV fandom and getting on the show and being so authentic out there actually pulled this off, and I know... Going into the finale, she was certainly uh, the person that I would have said and probably did say uh, in our pre-finale podcast was my number one kind of winner candidate at that point. But it really snuck up on me. At what point were you starting to feel like Marianne was like a legit winner contender? So I guess in retrospect, some of it was when the emerging and overwhelming consensus on the Internet seemed to be Marianne has to be the favorite now. And that is... One thing that's worth keeping in mind uh, is that uh, if 41 was pretty widely spoiled and there was certainly a lot of uh, recrimination after the fact over, it sure seemed like everyone was onto the Erica thing pretty quickly, despite all of the contextual clues pointing the other way. 42 was one of the most quickly and most thoroughly spoiled seasons in the entire history of the show. Wait, was it um, really? I had uh, I have yeah. legit not heard a single thing about this. Right, and I guess I did a good job of avoiding that this time around because I did not feel like I had run across that and I did not you know, stumble upon a bootless in the wild or anything. Um, but yeah, apparently that was the case and stuff is, I think, starting to come out about 43 as well, so be, be vigilant there. I don't know if maybe it's a, a thing with the, like the, the current crew or whatever where if... 41 and 42 were spoiled to that degree. That does not bode well on that front for, for the future, uh, unfortunately. Um, but as for when I personally uh, started to think that maybe this was Marianne to lose, um, well, the that Oma vote, which yeah. uh, was was her move and one which she took credit for and which the show gave her credit for, uh, it made sense just in how the game was playing out that, oh, wow, she has really pulled off this coup here and now she might be the front runner she might be the favorite um and we were not really given a, a reason to explicitly doubt that although even heading into the final six and then the final five i still felt like you know mike could very well win this and i would not be surprised or uh lindsay could uh clutch us out or that there are other outcomes in play here and i love that it felt like that was actually possible uh for for i guess so for 41, I thought it was Ricard at the end and then maybe Erica, although I guess it's kind of a case for Deshaun as well. Uh, so it, it's not like this has never been the case in the past, but I love that there are outcomes which seem both plausible and backed up by the content of what we saw in a way that, you know, I, I think that is the unique element here. Totally, yeah. And for me, I would say it was also that Omer boot where my eyes were really open to like, oh my God, this this actually might happen. And a part of that was because of how Marianne uh, 
came across like in the TV episodes, I would have thought uh, during the early weeks, just based on the first 20 years of Survivor, that they would not make a make an eventual winner look the way they made Marianne look uh, during plenty of that time. And furthermore, I was just such a believer in Omer at that point until he was eliminated that I thought until further notice, he's got to be number one by a mile. But again, love living in a world where we can no longer take that for granted. And we said the same thing last season about Shan and the way that she was presented there, where even coming into this season, knowing to be kind of on my toes much more so than I ever had been before along those lines, uh, it's still... I still kind of allowed it to happen to me with Omer and am telling myself that I won't do so with season 43, but that's finally going to be the time that they flip it back. And there is this big glowing winner edit probably. Uh, but either way, I love being in a situation where I can just get totally owned the way that I did by the edit uh, of Marianne in particular, Omer, uh, but plenty more. And I love living in a world where, I can very easily talk myself into a Lindsay type still having plenty of chance entering that finale. I think that's one of the most vital elements of any season for me. Uh, but I think as far as Marianne being the latest and reigning Survivor winner, I, first of all, I'm extremely happy for her, you know, happy to see any kind of like hardcore super fan, uh, like, active redditor even though i've i've never been an active redditor or like big brother live feed watcher and fiend like go out there and as far as i can tell and i would be shocked if this wasn't the case make what was essentially like a lifelong dream of hers come true and marianne is not that much older than these shows that she's been such a fan of are themselves so i i genuinely buy that this was like as long as she can remember something that she uh, was really hoping to see happen. And I also just feel like Marianne is kind of a perfect poster child or, you know, poster adult uh, for what it takes in the new era of Survivor, where I feel like this is the, the kind of backbone of this has certainly been true as far as I've ever been concerned for as long as Survivor has been on the air. But I think now much more so than ever in the past. We are in what I would describe as the B water era of Survivor. Uh, a very famous Bruce Lee quote uh, about just his outlook on life. And I feel like Marianne this season was water in the way that one needs to be water in modern times where you just have to roll with whatever comes your way the over the course of the game, even though it's only 26 days now, you are going to get thrown into the blender. They are going to pour you into the teapot. They're going to pour you into the bottle. They're going to pour you into the cup and you need to just become whatever the circumstances around you dictate. Uh, she played well from the bottom. She played well from the top. She was happy to go along being kind of a passenger for a while. And then come end game time, she knew to be the driver and finished very strong, had like an all time final tribal council performance. And on top of all of that was just a fantastic character who was totally true to herself every step of the way. And I feel like if I were to be giving advice to anyone going out there on a future season of Survivor, it would just be those two words, be water. Uh, and I feel like Marianne is a perfect illustration of what it takes 
in the modern era to succeed. Yeah, when uh, Mike won that Final Five immunity and was popping off, and he said that I've been waiting 21 years for this, Marianne was in kindergarten when, <laughs> you know, when uh, Survivor started airing, and Mike was, what, in, in like his mid-30s, and he would get back from a, a long day at the firehouse and sit down with his family in front of the TV and, and start watching Survivor. So uh, definitely just a real generation gap here, and uh, it is both humbling that I'm sure Marianne is one of those people who has, like, an email address that's Marianne Okesh 96 or something. And God, it, it just tells me every time I think about it. And then at the same time, you have Mike who at the age of 57, you know, it, it's him and Bob Crowley effectively in a tier of their own in terms of just success at that age in that generation on Survivor. And with Bob, as uh, we are about to get to, as we wrap up uh, Gabon uh, in parallel with this on the patron feed, that one felt very much uh, accidental, and uh, there are a lot of timelines, as you might say, uh, where that does not come through. With Mike, it felt like he was a, a big character and a big player in the season, and really a, a massive part of, of everything that happened here. And for him to do that while being, you know, old enough to be their father, in the case of basically every other contestant, is uh, pretty impressive, I think. I, I think a case can at least be made that Mike was a big-time driving force behind most of uh, the kind of, like, strategic decisions that got made. And I talked a little bit about this in the pre-finale podcast before seeing the result. But yeah, I think it's amazing what Mike was able to pull off at age 57, surrounded almost entirely, and at a certain point, Almost, quite literally, like entirely by people very close to half his age. And I know that there haven't been that many people who have had the opportunity to do that over the years just because of how the show was cast. And I'm very eager to point out that many, many others, I'm sure, could have, uh, if they had essentially been allowed on the show, done things very similar to Mike, but just based on the sample size that we've actually gotten to see, and hopefully it continues to expand, uh, I really do feel like Mike has kind of set the gold standard for someone that much older than the rest of the people that they're playing this deeply social game with in terms of showing that it is absolutely viable to pe to put people like Mike out there in that sort of age range and have them drawing very live uh, to end up taking the whole thing down there in potentially more deliberate ways than uh, Bob was able to pull off there in Gabon. Uh, one other thing, I, I do want to talk uh, more about Mike in a minute here, but one thing back to Marianne and just the way that she was presented that I really love to see play out over the course of the season uh, because it is something that we've talked about ad nauseum, frankly, over the years. And I love having this kind of case cementing it for me as we could have been doing this the whole time and I'll let it go as long as we can keep doing it in the future. Uh, I talked to a bunch of just kind of casuals on the street about Survivor and Marianne was not someone that they were a big fan of for the most part during the early weeks of this season. But by the time the finale rolled around, pretty much all of them were big time pulling for Marianne to be the eventual winner. And I think that is another vital thing that I am at this point very confident they recognize when they're putting together uh, or will recognize when they're putting together future seasons of the show is 
you do not need to give the winner just glowing treatment from pillar to post. You can literally put it off until the last couple of episodes and turn someone that the casual fans either weren't really aware of, uh, and Erica, I think, is a good illustration of this last season, or actively disliked, uh, potentially, as Marianne may have been in the early weeks this season, and make them the overwhelming casual fan rooting interest by the time the finale rolls around. Uh, and I am very hopeful that that is something they're much more open to in the future than they pretty much ever have been in the past. So uh, loved, by the way. Yeah, I I, I think oh, some, some of that goes back to what you mentioned uh, a while ago with Marianne, uh, the idea of authenticity, where... At first, you watch those early episodes and Marianne is like so loud, so OTT, and you think that she can't be for real, that this has to be put on. And if it's an act, then it's kind of an annoying act, and one which I don't know if I have the stomach for over the course of 13 episodes. Um, and so like, what one example which a lot of people latched onto was when Jackson had to be medevaced and she, you know, she was bursting into tears and like uh, wailing over this guy that she's known for you know, a day or two at that point. But uh, th this was something that she actually got into in that incredibly long uh, deep dive with Rob, which, by the way, love that she just set it as her goal to break that record and managed to succeed. And yet, from what I gather, uh, you know, haven't listened to a ton of it yet, but it, it did not feel like she had to pad out that time in order to, to get that record. She was able to just keep it going uh, in full flow there. Like that is just because uh, the you know the way she was brought up and the way that she was taught to express grief. You do that loudly. You you wear your heart on your sleeve and you show just how much that person means to you, even if in in this case it's someone who is a relative stranger. And I think once people saw that, yeah, that this isn't an act. This isn't Marianne dining it up to eleven. This is just Marianne's like natural resting state. It became a lot easier for for those people to. Uh, accept her and really enjoy her for who she is and I, I was kind of in on her from the start i just like having that kind of big extroverted personality around um but for the people who took some time to warm up to her i, I think it, it makes sense why they came around in the end and then the people who maybe saw the tea leaves in terms of marianne being a possible winner but didn't quite understand why for a while i think that oma move came at the perfect time to really cement that for the viewers and then also for the jury in the end too and i know that this has led to some discussion uh in light of how marianne won this season and how erica won in 41 of is this just how you play in the modern era now where you try to not be on the radar too early and then you bide your time and in like the the mid to late game just as that transition is happening that's when you you strike and then you then make this dash for the finish line and I think it I think it is, but I think that's just how the game naturally plays out when you have a cast full of people who are all gaming that hard. And it's just that it took some time for us to have enough of those seasons to see that in action. And one one place where you can really see that in action, honestly, is Winners of War, right? Where this is something I distinctly remember from Sophie's deep dive on that season, where she said that the the reason that she kind of took her guard down a bit and was able to be blindsided by Tony in the way she was is that until that point, which was pretty late in the game uh, and a, a kind of crucial inflection point, uh, Tony had been, he'd been Tony, he'd been like manic and uh, 
and wacky and loud and so on, but he hadn't been playing overtly hard in the way that you kind of associate with Tony if when you watch his first season. And so he was able to just lay low until the time came where he wasn't laying low anymore. But by the time you realized that was going on, it was too late. At least it certainly was for Sophie. And it was too late for other people to recalibrate their plans at that point. And, and Tony was able to just uh, make this mad dash uh, to the end. And so when you have three back-to-back winners, essentially with very different uh, you know, backgrounds and personalities and so on, implementing the same plan. I think that suggests that this is just how the game works when you don't have the conditions in place for like a Boston Rob or a Kim to just you know, plow through from day one. Right, and I have been firmly of that school of thought since, I think, long before we even started to see meat shields be discussed right around uh, like the early 30s as a standard kind of strategy, uh, meaning the pretty much last place you want to be in a game of Survivor, unless you were surrounded by complete idiots, is the obvious shot caller big threat to win, because if the people around you are even slightly acting in their own best interest, they're obviously going to take you out. And that was that's why I was such a Boston Rob detractor since day one, ten and a half years ago uh, uh, on this podcast, and why I was a big Adam Klein supporter uh, in the effort he made to leave David Wright in to be taken out uh, once the end game rolled around because you you want to not be the person who is the big obvious threat near the end game. You want to have the person there that you can point to uh, and eliminate uh, at a point where you would otherwise be taken out if you were the one who was obviously going to win. And I think it ties directly into the show casting far more big time fans of the game who are acting in their best interest instead of people who are out there for Instagram exposure or because they want to go camping or whatever, because they're just big personalities. I think the better the overall cast is, the more important it becomes to not peak too early. And I think that's something we are going to continue to see for sure. And another element that well, I think... Hey, look, you can do both. You can uh, you can have the shans of the world who are like these season-defining characters and players, but who also, after the fact, are monetizing their connection to God. You, know, you, you, you can't have it all in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sure can, apparently. Uh, but only when he tells you that that's what you should do. Uh, anyway... One other thing I wanted to say uh, about Marianne, I, I know I touched on this, but an all-time excellent final travel council with the big, uh, is it piece de resistance? What am I think? Coup de gras? Uh, what am I thinking of? Like the big crowning achievement, Dom. I think crowning achievement is a, a good. There's some uh, French way of putting it that I would have expected you to know uh, that I'm currently spacing on, but revealing that she had the idol that she never used, wanted to give her a big time shout out for never telling a single soul about that idol, and I was wondering why she didn't, uh, in the round where it expired, at least get Jeff to validate in the moment that it was a real idol and then just decide not to play it, uh, which I think is a hack that someone should use in the future, get Jeff to validate it, which he's historically been very willing to do and then say, okay, thank you. I'm not going to play it. Uh, But when she got Mike to idol her to pull that out in the moment, I thought would be something that would potentially be too juicy of an opportunity in front of the jury 
to pass up, but big time credit to her for being patient there, not doing the thing that probably would have painted an even bigger target on her back as like this big threat heading into final tribal council. Who knows? Maybe if she does go for that big splashy idol move at the final five instead of final tribal council, uh, Romeo's not interested in voluntarily taking her to the end there. So uh, really, really loved that in particular uh, about uh, Mary. I- I hated it. I was so bad. I, I I fully bought into we are gonna get like the next level Natalie Anderson idols out Baylor move here, where like Mike uses his idol on Marianne after prevaricating and promising like literally every other person on the island that he would use his idol on them, and then she would in turn like whip out her own idol, save Lindsay, and then vote out you know Mike's ally in the pose. It was gonna be so perfect and so beautiful, and then it just didn't happen which, which but i think I she, it didn't happen because she recognized that doing well, that and keeping Lindsay would be bad see i i i go back and forth on this because clearly i mean clearly it worked out and it, it makes it made sense you know the, the logic that she gave after the facts it, it, it all added up but i do wonder if she, she's in like this she's in this weird quantum state where if hot off the heels of her spearheading this this move on omer which catapulted her from the middle of the pack to being one of the the big threats heading into this final stretch. If after that immediately she then pulls off this amazing move where she saves Lindsay, at that point maybe Lindsay herself is not the big threat that she's been touted as by everyone, and Marianne, who has just saved that person and kept them in the game, and who, who now has this second uh, just uh, gangbusters move to her credit, maybe now Marianne is a favorite, and then she becomes the Lindsay heading into that final four round but now she has to win her way to the end right and maybe i guess if Lindsay's there too then i don't know if Lindsay would be like drawn enough into the idea of loyalty where if she won she would take marianne or or what have you but um yeah to try to pass how that final four round goes if marianne does that like gets very messy at the same time the final four round that we actually saw is also a bit weird as well, where I don't think it was, uh, I don't think anyone had their money on Romeo winning. I, I guess the people who knew the exact boot list and so on from day one maybe had their money on that, but uh, the, the people who were unspoiled coming into the finale, no one predicted uh, Romeo winning, and that is almost the most interesting outcome to consider, because if Marianne wins, then great, it, it's all over. If Jonathan or Mike wins, I'm assuming each of them takes the other is that the sense you get as well i not necessarily i've heard i it certainly wouldn't surprise me if that were the case and i haven't heard anything to like directly conflict that idea potentially being exactly what would have happened but i don't think it's a guarantee yeah i, I guess so maybe there's a chance mike takes marianne especially if he was willing to give her the idol the previous round. But I think the, it's, the sense it's, I get is... I, I feel like I heard something about they wanted to show down in fire, and like they may have even given up the necklace to go beat... Hmm. Like Mike and Jonathan, in their minds, would be doing a million-dollar fire challenge and may the best man win. Huh. Okay. Maybe. Well, that's... I might also be making that up. I'm not 100% sure. Well, it's a fun theory, so let, let's go with it. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like either they would take each other for like uh you know we're we're bros and we're broing down in the, in the finals or they take romeo for the easy you know we, we can beat romeo 
And so we'll let the other two uh, fight it out for the right to join us as a third. But I guess, yeah, there is that other option, too, of if uh, we want to face off for what they think is a million dollars, although I, I, I don't know about that, mm-hmm. um, then, yeah, maybe Marianne was just in, like, this insanely crushing position that she didn't even appreciate, because <laughs> how could she expect them to sabotage their own games like that? That's a, a fun world to think about. And potentially, though, a position that they would be far less comfortable putting themselves in if she had just kind of embarrassed Mike, essentially, at that final five with the idols, uh, like Natalie Anderson style. I think that may have been a very bad thing for her entering Final Four and not done a whole lot, uh, given the crushing position it seems like she was in with the jury, no matter how she ended up getting there, in terms of improving her odds of winning when she makes it. I think all it came down to was making it, and I did want to say that as tempting as it would be and as obviously electric of a TV moment as it would be to have Mike play his idol on her and then, surprise, I have an idol of my own and now I get to call the ultimate shot here. Uh, I really admire the patience and ability to resist that temptation that I, again, don't know how it necessarily affected anything in particular, but I do think uh, overall a good sign that she was willing to pass on that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dom, Marianne, in the grand scheme of winners, where does she land for you? And I will acknowledge before even hearing your answer here or giving an answer of my own, that in the new era, it may be starting to become like comparing apples and oranges versus, you know, it's not like, oh, Marianne versus Ethan or versus... Brian Heideck or whatever, like, this is a much, much different game, and I, I want to get that out of the way up front. But it, gun to your head, where does Marianne stack up for you in the Survivor kind of winner rankings loosely? I I really have no idea. I think pretty high. I, I wonder if she is almost like... So we were very high on Adam Klein when he, when he won his season, and then... I know a lot of people were like rapidly updating that idea of him after Winners at War. I think the truth was for him, like somewhere in the middle, maybe Marianne is kind of where Adam's kind of average outcome was the whole time, if that makes sense. Um, where she has a lot of the same like moxie, uh, the same kind of uh, self-confidence, self-awareness, uh, the, the fandom that kind of like she has the abstract knowledge of the game as well as the ability to execute on that but then also as she acknowledged and was brought up to her in final tribal uh there were times at first where yeah she she rubbed some people the wrong way and some people out there with her had those concerns about authenticity right where it's like is is she for real like what was her her shtick and uh maybe if maybe if she was on an all-star season she would be even more kind of elite in the sense that everyone knows that she is for real and also she's shown that when her head is fully in the game and she can moderate that to some extent then she can be like very laser focused eyes on the prize and um is kind of like lethally effective at that point so the sense i get is she would be pretty high honestly and i don't know if 
the the success of Erica Anne, and Marianne is going to affect the metagame now that future seasons have had a chance to watch them. And the same way that, you know, we said on the heels of Cochrane and then Ian Terry and Steve Moses all like crushing their respective seasons, uh, that the next nerd with glasses, who's clearly a big super fan, is going to have a tough time. Maybe the next uh, Canadian woman who, who saunders on <laughs> Survivor is, uh, you know, going to have an uphill battle here. But I, I get the sense that, yeah, Marianne, as weird as it is that she won the season, it also doesn't feel at all surprising. It feels like, yeah, she's she's really good at this and she knows it and uh, could definitely do it again. Right. I think Marianne has unquestionably at this point for me an excellent mind for how the game Survivor works. And I would have a ton of faith in her if she were just a new player that no one knew about out there on 43 or 44 or whatever. And actually... To go back to the very natural comparison of Ethan Zahn, I think they might be kind of two sides of the same, or perhaps the opposite. I'm 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 losing myself in the uh, in the comparison here already. But Ethan is an illustration to me of someone who would absolutely crush like early era of survivor and be in very bad shape as far as i'm concerned in a more modern season and i think marianne is someone who would very routinely crush a season of survivor where she's surrounded by super fans instead of guys who are out there for adventures or the aforementioned like aspiring influencers or whatever who don't really care about the game Uh, i think marianne found herself in a an overall uh, pretty great cast in the grand scheme of Survivor history against whom to be up here. And I do think that would be the case in any sort of like future season as well. So uh, at the same time, though, I don't know that uh, things necessarily would have always gone this well for her if she had found herself playing back in like even as recently as like 2015, 2016, if not more recently than that, uh, where Marianne, in terms of like what Survivor I think is going to be going forward, is someone I would happily point to as this is one of the players that you should try to learn a lot from as far as how they approach to the more modern game. But I don't think I would say the same about like if Marianne were just time traveled back into an earlier season of Survivor. So I think on the whole, uh, again, a, a very difficult person for me to rank in just the grand scheme of Survivor winners, but certainly I'm, I'm rolling through the list now. I was about to say certainly well above average. We've had a, a lot of very, very talented players end up winning the game over the years. I don't think I would have Marianne like in my top 10 at this point, uh, although who knows, maybe, you know, give me a few more years and we see that she has some enormous impact on how all of the more kind of new era seasons end up playing out. And it could be well within the realm of possibility that Marianne goes on to be like one of the defining kind of characters of just the modern era and players of just the modern era of survivor. But as things stand right now, I think I would probably have her somewhere in like that 15 to 20 range and not, too far off from uh like adam klein i think is a very good comparison to make and to build on that comparison i think she was very conscious of the need to not be a hannah shapiro someone mm-hmm. who 
has a lot of the same uh, knowledge, right? And who maybe struggled socially initially, but kind of found her footing past a certain point. But the thing that really did for Hannah in the end was that by the time she started making moves to distinguish herself from the other people around her, it was very clear that that's exactly what she was doing. And even if the moves themselves did not make sense, then just making a move in its own right, like we talk about padding your resume or whatever, like if that if the resume item like doesn't have any substance to it, then that's not going to count for anything. And so that move on Omer, I think, came at the perfect time. And Marianne actually said she highlighted the final six round as based on the research that she'd done and these theories that she constructed about how the end game tends to play out like that was the ideal time she thought to go for a move like that um so i i think she realized that she was kind of in that position and she had the opportunity to really flip that perception of her and to get out one of the big threats in the process and she did not back down from that fight uh and i think that was absolutely essential where if omar stays in the game even one more round then i don't know if even if you know someone else gets him out at some other point i don't know if marianne herself can really claim much of the credit there and i think incidentally that was a very heads up uh discovery and set of priorities by her to recognize just how vital final six has become now that there is literally nothing you can do about eliminating the person you want to eliminate at final four and final five essentially just serves to set up the final four that you were left to just kind of take your chances with uh, final six. I do absolutely buy being a massively important round, much more so than it ever was uh, for the first couple of decades ish of the run of survivor there. So really uh, like to, hearing Marianne break that down. And I think she's totally right uh, about the way that that all goes these days. Uh, Dom, I'm sure other things about Marianne and the game she played that uh, are are quite likely to come up uh, along the way here. But I think for now, let's switch it over uh, to some of these other people that we saw in the finale and how things ultimately went for them. Uh, Let's get into Mike, who I don't think... Too many people were shocked to see him end up making it to tribe, final tribal council. I thought I certainly was someone who thought in the timelines where he does make it, uh, I am not nearly as willing to rule out Mike potentially being the winner as it seemed like plenty were the week or so before the finale. Uh, I would say for uh, me, I, I thought when uh, Mike beat Jonathan in fire, like, oh, wait, maybe that's it. Maybe this has just been in front of our noses this whole time. And yeah, Mike's going to maybe not run away with it it seemed like marianne was gonna give him a run for his money but a like a narrow mic win at that point would not have shocked me at all totally yeah and for me it was when we were at final tribal council and he was being asked about like all the lies that he told and he kind of took the coach wade line of i the only person i ever lied to was Roxroy without them doing something to deceive me first and after seeing the way that the jury responded to that, I did want to applaud Mike for his willingness to be self-reflective. And I think it was a moment of complete sincerity where he said, oh, my God, I I think you guys might be right. And I may have been a little more duplicitous than it ever seemed to me in the moment. But it really was 
uh, because the comparison that immediately came to mind for me when he was giving that speech kind of at the beginning of Final Travel Council was Coach. And just based on what we saw from Coach and the way the jury received him in South Pacific, I did not think that was a good sign. And right around then, I was thinking, okay, yeah. this is just game over for Mike. Yeah, Coach was the first comparison that came to mind for me as well. I think there are some pretty important differences, though, where, first of all, in South Pacific, uh, it felt like the jury was not happy with the options they were presented with, right? Like, they maybe respected Coach's game on some level, but weren't sure how intentional it even was. He did not especially like him personally and felt a little kind of gross about the way that he use morality and especially religion uh, as part of his game and then they didn't seem to really have much time for sophie either and kind of thought that uh certainly before the the final four challenge win like i don't know how many people would have had anything to say about sophie at that point and then albert they were just openly <laughs> contemptuous of um so i think if none of the above had been on the ballot in that season it would have won in a landslide um I don't think that was the case this time around. It felt like they really did genuinely like all of the finalists. Uh, even Romeo, who the attitude seemed to be, we're not voting for him, but well, at least we're not going to savage him the way that a lot of these zero-vote finalists have been savaged almost as a form of catharsis uh, in the past. Um, and then Marianne, they uh, were very open-minded about. And then with Mike, it seemed like they were almost actively rooting for him to understand enough of his own game that they could justify voting for him and it was his failure to give them that that was so i thought it was really compelling and tragic at the same time you know him falling at that final hurdle snatching defeat from the jaws of victory because he was almost uh too wrapped up in his own honesty for his own good right and i think honestly something similar may have been in play with coach it at uh, south pacific and sophie has said multiple times that she thinks if Jeff framing so much of the discussion at final travel council had been a thing during her South Pacific final travel council coach would have won because Jeff would have gotten him there. And that the vibe she got was that a lot of the Savai people just wanted, or, and other Upolu people like Brandon, perhaps uh, in particular, just wanted him to own up to what he had done. Uh, and I, I definitely think the same was at least to some extent in play here for Mike as well. Although I also feel like the show probably made it seem like Mike was closer to potentially winning than he actually was. The, I, I, again, haven't heard firsthand from uh, too many people at this point, but I would not be surprised if in several of the cases, just based on some of the offhand comments I've seen, like a lot of the Marianne votes were essentially locked up, even though they came in at the beginning of Final Travel Council and said, hey, our votes are wide open. A ton of it's going to just come down to what answers you give. I think in this case, a lot of that may have meant if Marianne completely punts it and Mike knocks it out of the park, I'm willing to vote for Mike. But unless anything really changes, I'm definitely voting for Marianne. I, I, I don't remember. I wish I remembered the exact people that were in question. But Omer somewhere in that deep dive he did with Rob said several people at Ponderosa were asking him, why aren't you obviously voting for Marianne? Yeah, so th there was that uh, 
impromptu poll at the kind of uh, on-site reunion where Jeff asked if Mike had been more forthcoming, how many of you would have voted for him instead? And basically everyone raised their hand. I, I don't believe you, that. I, yeah, you, you wonder how much of that is just uh, people wanting to seem more open-minded than they were and uh, wanting to kind of put it on Mike for throwing it away rather than, you know, my preconception coming in was I'm going to vote for this person and then I voted for them and Final Tribal was kind of pointless as it is the vast majority of the time. Um, that being said, it, it felt like with Coach, it almost was this existential crisis of if I admit that I played the game without my my precious honesty and integrity, then my entire like raison d'etre collapses. For Mike, it was just... Oh, now someone knows French. Okay, got it. I, what? <laughs> Whereas for Mike, it, it didn't feel quite that extreme. And you saw him kind of piece it together at Final Tribal almost, right? Where he said, you know, maybe I actually did play the game in a more cutthroat way than I'm giving myself credit for. And by then it was too late. Like If you're having that realization in front of the jury, then you've you've lost you've lost them at that point um but i do think you know if if mike had been more uh self-aware in how he played then it it would have been like a much more close run thing and i feel like when <laughs> you you get into the point where you're arguing with the jury members and you're telling them that well, you you only did it because they lied to you first. And actually, if you check the tape, I think you'll find that, you know, the, the your lie was first and that's what justified this whole thing. Even if you're right, it's so far from a winning argument. Like, they, they, no, no one possibly is going to receive that well. Uh, that That's when I knew, like, my, Mike's, Mike's goose was cooked. Like, There's no way he could win at that point. Right, yeah. And I think we may be at the point, and perhaps have been for quite some time, because we've certainly said things along these lines over the years, but Mike is a very glaring example of like, if it's final tribal council and you get the sense that the jury really wants you to own up to something, even if you were like a hundred percent sure that you didn't do it, just say you did it. Like they clearly, <laughs> that's the answer that they want you to give. And I would love to see some future season where someone's just like, Webay on the wire. Sorry for the wire references, like just owning up to a bunch of, bodies that they didn't even put down <laughs> because that that seems like the thing to do at the time uh but i to quickly clarify i buy that some of the people on the jury who did not vote for mike were very open to voting for mike but i do not buy that every single person who raised their hand no. at the end there that, that is beyond insane uh and i I, 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 I do what uh, go ahead i was just gonna say as you alluded to the overwhelming supermajority of the time, I would say, in the course of Survivor history, virtually every juror has their mind essentially 100% made up, and I do not think that was the case here. I think this was, like, one of the most open-minded juries that Survivor has ever seen. I just don't think that means they were objectively, like, totally open-minded, and that's fine. They don't have to be. But, yeah, uh, yeah I don't want to make it sound like I think they were all just, like, dead locked in, because I don't think that was the case either. I thought uh, Tori's uh, kind of opening salvo was pretty interesting in framing the, the kind of tones of engagement for this final tribal, where she she went down the line and listed her perception of, of each person. And for Mike, it was essentially, you're someone who really values playing the game with honesty and integrity and so on. And it seemed to me, I, I don't know if this was her intention, but it was almost like she was teeing him up to say, 
yeah, that's exactly who I am as a person in real life. And that's what I use as cover in the game to do what I needed to do to, you know, get the, get the business done. Um, and it feels like that was the perfect uh, setup for the argument that he needed to make. And yet he just let that slip away. And, and then later on, Chanel, I think, tried to guide him back in that direction. It's like, Mike, you're not really picking up what we're putting down here in quite gentle terms, but also clearly a little frustrated with like, please just read the room and see see what uh, we want to hear from you. And he didn't pick up on that either. And yet Marianne, I think, could have made a much better pitch for Mike than Mike made for himself, and then also made the perfect pitch for herself at the same time. Right. Uh, yeah, I think Mike, in his defense, truly believed what he was saying about not lying to anyone until he felt like they had been deceitful towards him. And I'm sure it's not easy in that context where you spend the whole day rolling through what you're going to say at final tribal council and you show up and it turns out the jury completely disagrees with the kind of backbone of your premise there and coming to that realization and saying in the moment, you know, it took him a little while to get there, but to be willing to say, Oh my God, I think I've had this all wrong all along is, uh, a commendable kind of realization to come to there in my view, albeit one that was not going to ultimately get him a million dollars after such a, a off kind of initial approach there. But I think he definitely handled himself very well overall, considering the kind of context of what an uphill battle he was going to have to be fighting if that was his approach in the first place. And uh, unlike coach and Sophie, I think most people were genuinely torn, those who were undecided, between voting for Mike or for Marianne. I don't think we had pretty much anyone casting votes against the other person. And then there's Romeo, who we should mention in passing here, because I think he knew that he was he was not winning the season, right? And I think it's so easy in that situation to just kind of uh, admit defeat and to let that show and to just essentially or i would say pull a troizan but that's almost unfair to troizan who i think understood his role there and handled that with a, a lot of grace which is maybe uncharacteristic of him um, <laughs> for romeo i think he he did the best he could with just the worst hand possible like he knew uh he was playing for like will i get a vote or not as opposed to will i win the season and yeah he didn't get a vote but it felt like no one came away like seething with anger at Romeo or just full of contempt and disgust at Romeo. I totally agree. And I don't think that was something that suddenly sprang on him the morning of final tribal council. I think Romeo knew probably not too shortly after the merge, to be honest, that it was going to take an incredible amount of luck to get out of just the situation that he was in to have any chance at winning and i think by the time the end game rolled around like final six seven thereabouts he was very aware that this was not going to end with a romeo victory and we heard him literally say at final tribal council this was not the game i wanted to play but this was the game that was dealt to me and i think that as far as i'm concerned is accurate you know romeo in the early days it seemed like was someone with a ton of potential as a survivor player who just wound up at a merge where 
his hands weren't necessarily tied. Like he wasn't pot committed to the wrong group or whatever, but circumstances were just clearly essentially insurmountable uh, in terms of like ever having a huge amount of say within the game or getting too many jury votes. And I, I would imagine Romeo knew that probably right around like day 15, 16, somewhere in there, in there, or at least was strongly feeling like that could be the case. And I genuinely think that Romeo winning that final immunity challenge was like his last big goal of the season, because I, I am pretty confident that he knew certainly by the time final four rolled around, if not long before that, that he was never going to win this season based on the circumstances around him and winning final immunity and getting Jeff to put that necklace on him kind of became like his way of having some sort of victory on the season. So I was happy uh, to see that go his way. And furthermore, just one of the most surprising kind of final immunity results I feel like we've ever ended up getting. Maybe the biggest surprise of the night was Romeo winning yeah. that. I, I remember saying in the pre-finale podcast, oh, watch us turn up. And Romeo is like, to pull a crazy example out of my head, he like wins the fire challenge or something. And that was like the craziest thing I could come up with. Cause I thought him winning final immunity was just like off the table, but good, I, good on him. Yeah. I will say, I do not see the potential that you see in him. I, I think I like, I, it, it's hard for me to picture a season where he is like one of the main characters or driving forces or someone who you're really looking at as a potential winner. I, I just find that really hard to picture. I just think he is someone who could thrive in the modern environment where the basic idea, as far as I would be concerned, is to develop really good bonds with people during the early days, but don't emerge as a big target until very late and then make some big moves near the end to really establish yourself as a jury threat. I think Romeo right. could, could I totally mean, he's, he, fit that. He's in the modern environment and he didn't do that. And, and it, it doesn't... Again, I don't mean he could do it every time. I think <laughs> circumstances around him were not suitable for it here. Well, I, I mean, I think the circumstances were mostly people were suspicious of him largely in part just, you know, because of his manner and the way he played the game. And I feel like that's how he's going to come across most of the time. So I, I don't see that basic aspect changing. I think the Taku for sticking around for as long as they did was basically the end of the game for Romeo. And I, you may be dead right. I'm not trying to say that this is... That Romeo is not going to be the next Kelly Wentworth for me, okay? I'll, I'll <laughs> throw that out there. And I, I frankly, I doubt we end up seeing Romeo back, but you never know. Uh, and. It's... I mean, someone who maybe could be the new Kelly Wentworth, I would say, is Lindsay, question mark, who, uh, you know, hair color and so on aside, uh, I think Lindsay, to me, seems like one of the most just normal people they've had on Survivor in a long time. And I mean that in the sense of, um, like, on a season where basically everyone had some kind of montage explaining their backstory and uh, like the one thing that's the, the the one cause that's really close to their heart and that they're playing the game for and um and on top of that some of them were very like unique or distinct uh survivor character types Lydia just seems like yeah she's a person who's playing survivor and e even stuff like her reaction to the monty hall problem which I i'm gonna unearth this quote again because it is uh phenomenal but wh while i do that you can uh <laughs> chime in with any thoughts you have on Lindsay. Here. well i i agree with your overall assessment that Lindsay does seem like uh a remarkably kind of normal person to be out there 
on any kind of reality TV show. And certainly one thing she has in common with Kelly Wentworth is that I think I might just be hopelessly in love with her. Uh, so she's got oh, that oh, going oh for her there. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, Lindsay, I think it all really came down to not idling Omer at final six. And we didn't talk about that uh, in a ton of detail, but that's something I'm going to be really curious to hear if we end up hearing from Lindsay uh, in like a deep dive format what went into that decision. I know like the kind of rough explanation is they were nervous that if they did play an idol there, it would then go back in and potentially throw a wrench into their plans for final five when they didn't think they had that much to worry about with final six either way. Uh, but yeah, Lindsay, you know, wins the final five advantage and does not this time end up converting that into a challenge win for the record. I think the uh, final five advantage was a lot more fair this season than it was last season, where it was basically an automatic immunity necklace, uh, not to sell Erica short or whatever. Uh, but I do continue to believe that had Lindsay made it to final travel council, she would have been in there with a real shot against most of the people. Although I haven't heard a ton of like jury feedback about how Lindsay would have necessarily done, but I think Lindsay is someone who's going to be in any kind of survivor season, much like Kelly Wentworth, where she would probably have to run pretty bad to not do well for herself and be an above average player in the cast. Uh, so I don't know what, the likelihood is of us seeing Lindsay back. I certainly would personally be here for it. Uh, although. Well, I, I can tell you exactly what the chances are. It's 50, 50 because as she would put it, the odds are the same. <laughs> the odds are always the same. So here's, <laughs> here, here's the, the, the quote from her on the, the Monty Hall problem. So here's the, the interviewer setting up the question. How many times since then have people been explaining the Monty Hall problem to you and how you should have switched boxes and so on. So many times. And once they read the statistics about it, I'm like, okay, I guess I get it. But at the same time, in roulette, they're like, oh, look at who's red and who's black. The odds are the same. The odds are always the same. So from three to two, it's still 50-50. So I understand the logistics behind it, but clearly that doesn't always work every time. And I went with my gut. And I think that your gut, ultimately, is going to take you further than statistics, which... <laughs> You know what? It's just an iconic quote on so many levels, but I actually, I love it in the sense that, like, once you know what the right answer is, then yeah, okay, obviously you should do that. But at that point, it's easy to become a remotely interesting problem, and you just do the same thing every time. Whereas, if you have someone like Lindsay in there, just, uh, you know, going based on uh, gut instinct, then that generates just more discourse to keep the to keep the chain going uh, for, for days to come. Anyone else I would have a much different response to, but Lindsay, you're 100% right. Uh, we, I, I'm, yes. I'm happy to let her roll with that. And look, you know, her gut ended up winning and math, if she had switched, would have ended up losing. So there you have it. Uh, the, the proof is in the pudding. And Deshaun, same boat. Uh, I'm very happy to let Deshaun do whatever he ends up wanting to do and happy to see him make it through in that same spot. So I, it, I, I may have... Uh conspiracized is that a word about this with Deshaun last season but do you think there is any chance that knowing that there is a mathematically correct solution to the Monty Hall problem and that if people know that then they should just be doing the same thing every time do you think they would consciously mix up the uh you know the process by which Jeff like 
reveals and then makes the offer and then switches. Do you think there's anything nefarious uh, going on here? So uh, let me just be certain that I'm understanding your question correctly. Do you mean put it in a different box or do you mean if Jeff sees the person pick the wrong one, he would do something different to get them to switch or not offer to switch if uh, they pick the right one? Or what, what are you getting at? Well, I guess, okay, thinking through this a bit more, there would have to be some weird, like, uh, shell game side of hand action going on here to... <laughs> I, I didn't quite think this through, but I, I don't know. I, it seems fully within their range to make it so that uh, going with your gut is not actually as bad as it very clearly mathematically is on paper. So I do buy what Ricard was talking about on RHAP a few weeks ago. Uh, he was the guest, I believe, on the week where Lindsay did this do or die. Uh, and he said that when he was watching Deshaun do it, he got the sense that Jeff was almost overtly guiding Deshaun to picking the safe box. Uh, and I haven't gone back and looked at the footage myself. And I know that came up like as it was happening in real time on 41 and people said, oh, no, there's nothing suggesting that but like ricard was right there uh, so i do wonder if there has been some subtle work done by jeff to help people arrive at the correct conclusion because we had jordan on jordan parhar uh the week that that all went down and we talked about are the producers rooting for the person to stay safe or are they rooting for someone to leave the game in a manner like that? And I would guess that like overwhelmingly they want that big suspenseful moment, but they don't actually want anyone to have that be how their survivor game ends. So I do leave myself open to the possibility that while they are not explicitly telling them which one to pick and to stick with it, even though it's spitting in the face of mathematics, I do buy that Jeff could be doing some subtly persuasive things if he gets the sense that they are someone inclined to like stick with their gut. But I also think, you know, there is a one in nine chance that every single element of it was above board and they just both got lucky. That is 11% chances hit all the time. I promise. Mm. Yeah. They hit about 11% of the time last I checked. So, uh, yeah, loved Lindsay overall. We will see what becomes of Lindsay, a potential future returnee, but I don't think she's someone that I'm like penning in as a person. They're like dying to see back. And probably if I'm being honest with myself, uh, a person that unlike me, most people probably aren't dying to see Lindsay back, although I don't think many people would, like, object to it. Um, the other person, I guess, Dom, that we had here making it through to this finale, our eventual fire challenge loser here, Jonathan, uh, who you flagged up a very interesting stat earlier. Jonathan, out of the people who made the final eight on this season, actually had the fewest confessionals. But I, I really do think that's kind of some deceptive statistics there unlike most statistics which are totally straightforward uh i feel like jonathan was certainly one of the most memorable presences on this season like when it's all said and done i think he's going to be one of the more uh one of the people in this cast that the casuals have the strongest memory of uh and with good reason i mean jonathan really did stand out from the pack like physically to an extent that we potentially have like 
never seen before where it's just this one guy who's just like this super dominator from day one in the challenges. Normally there are like several people who are basically out there to do challenges and that's what they really excel at and are interested in doing. Do you think that the one Jonathan type in a cast is going to be standard or is this like an outlier and we'll go back next season to a bunch of beefy people? Would you say that uh, like, Xander was the the Jonathan before his time, or I, no. I'm trying to. <laughs> I, I don't think Jonathan Xander was even close to a Jonathan before his time. Did Xander win anything? Ah, uh, no. Which <laughs> really did puncture the narrative that people were trying to develop of him being like this incredible challenge beast. But um, I'd say like I, James I mean, was the closest to me. James, like in China, but even there, they still had some other people who were very good. In the you know James across several seasons, but particularly China, just standing out as like so far ahead of the field physically. Yeah, I, I mean, if it is a requirement for the uh, th- this archetype for the Jonathan to actually be winning challenges, that does narrow down the pool quite substantially because a lot of James the, uh... also didn't win any challenges. Right, that's what I mean. Like a lot of the the big lunks that we've had uh, in the course of Survivor history have not actually being like the amazing dominant challenge performance that you you might expect so jonathan as memorable as he was i think he would be far better served rather than returning to survivor and this is another thing we got into with jordan uh cbs is now doing like its own version of the challenge with strictly cbs people and i believe it's actually on in primetime this summer after like big brother airs on Wednesdays or whatever. And it's going to be like literally on CBS, which is kind of cool. Uh, and I'm sure I'll at least at the beginning, check that out. But if that show ends up becoming like a staple of the CBS summer calendar, Jonathan is going to be one of the front runners, like every single time he's on there. And I would imagine that just getting on survivor could at the end of Jonathan's reality TV career in like the brighter timelines essentially be looked at as his springboard onto printing money year after year after year on the challenge CBS. And I wonder if that becomes the end game for the Jonathans of the world, where if maybe you have no real emotional investment in being on Survivor in his own right, but if this is uh, the gateway to a spot on the challenge where if you, you know, if you effectively have tenure on that show, uh, then that might be both more lucrative and then also just what you enjoy more, like what you're there for compared to just roughing it on an island and actually having to play a social game there. Yeah. Uh, and I also wanted to say about Jonathan, I was very happy that we were able to fade the Jonathan as a losing final tribal councilist uh, outcome here where Xander could have been the original Jonathan, I feel like, if we got that result. And I think it may have been even more exaggerated if it were Jonathan instead of Xander. I am so grateful that we do not have to wade through the Facebook messenger messenger and posters and so forth and, like, the casuals that I'm a big fan of talking to on the street. I feel like probably wouldn't have loved it if Jonathan had lost in a jury vote rather than... Uh, a fire challenge. So thank the survivor gods and Jeff Probst himself that that uh, ultimately didn't happen as far as I'm concerned. 
I, I I'm kind of regretful that we didn't get to see Jonathan have to defend himself to the jury. Um, I am sure there were some heated exchanges and so on once he got to Ponderosa, and he was only there for for one night. So you you had this uh, funny contrast where uh, we had that great montage, which is actually a new innovation of the the jury members in the what would have been the jury speaks videos in seasons past actually splice into this finale here um, to, to hear some of their thoughts in, uh, in, in advance. And in most of those, you see them all uh, kind of like prettied up and they've clearly, you know, after a week or more of uh, eating and showering properly and they're in their new clothes and so on. And then Jonathan is just in exactly the <laughs> same outfit and his hair looks exactly the same and, and so on. So the he, he basically juror. just... Yeah, he's just in permanent uh, jungle man mode. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think that was a missed opportunity to see him have to account for himself in a way that he probably wasn't expecting to have to. I agree that in theory it would be interesting, but I think it would have worn a little tedious on me after, you know, whatever it is, 25 minutes of him clearly not picking up what the jury was trying to put down for him. Uh, mm-hmm. I did love, though, by the way, that we switched to hearing from the jurors just before final travel council about what they wanted to hear from the finalists. And uh, instead of hearing the same kind of generic stuff from the people who are about to go be at final travel council, giving their answers and the stories they want to tell, I loved that change and also wanted to say, I'd like, I think that we have switched from jeff framing things in terms of outwit outplay outlast which who the hell ever knew what that was supposed to mean hint not jeff uh into now explicitly just framing it between we're going to talk about social stuff then we're going to talk about strategic stuff and we're going to talk about physical stuff maybe not in that order but i like that they kind of have at least some sort of baseline for each portion of the conversation in actual terms instead of complete made up because they sound similar words for your show tagline. Uh, I I do like that they kind of were able to focus the conversation around each of those elements one at a time. I still continue to not like uh, that one might be led to believe that each of those categories should be worth one third of what goes into your jury vote. I think that's uh, the wrong message to send, but I think in the era where the jury is predominantly, if not like overwhelmingly made up of super fans of the show, I have far less concern about that than I did uh, for the last few years. I think jurors in modern times uh, understand the, the job that they're there to do and like take pride in the job that they're there to do. Uh, so liked seeing a bit more clarity along mm. those lines. Did you, did you, you not so much? Well, given that this is what we're doing now, where we, it has to be broken up into these rigid segments and it's structured in this very specific way, then yeah, this makes a lot more sense than this rhyming trip. I guess it's not a rhyming trip, but whatever it is, the, the outwit, outplay, outlast nonsense. That being said, I still pine for the days where jury members could just stand up and say things without this very explicit uh, rubric to follow. And uh, for as much as I have all the love in the world for friend of the show, Stephen Fishback, uh, his immediate reaction 
on Noah Dawes after the finale of, you know, was this the best jury of all time? Not only, I mean, he walked that back pretty quickly to his credit, but to me it's, well, A, the answer is no, but the question itself does not really make sense because how could a jury in this setup even be in the mix for the best jury of all time? Because the, the whole point of the jury is to not really have distinct identities or opinions and to just like follow this set line of questioning like you you watch this episode again today right as i did could could you name a memorable moment that happened involving a jury member in this finale not like go on and and, well well i say i mean if you can and by all means do but i feel like the answer is no even with it at the forefront of your mind the answer is definitely going to be no in a few weeks, a few months, certainly in a few years where, you know, if we're taking the broad sweep here of what are the most memorable jury moments of all time, I don't think anything from this modern era could even possibly qualify. And that's that's not a knock on the jury members themselves, who I'm sure if uh, left with their own devices, there would have been some truly uh, scathing or memorable speeches uh, being given uh, across some of those seasons. It's just that though that is not given any chance to breathe now because it's all uh you know very very regimented and so to to go back to to steven's uh point yeah i I mean this might be the best like job interview panel of all time or if i was (laughs) defending my thesis then this is the jury i would want to do it in front of but uh if the the job of a jury is to be this uh is to bring the season full circle and to uh, bring closure to their own storylines and to make good TV in the process, I feel like they really just cannot possibly do that under the system. So I am, I think, going to kind of push back in a couple of respects there. Uh, first of all, the most memorable, and I don't think this is even a function of how many people were watching and what a nationwide phenomenon, phenomena? That's plural. Phenomenon, it was, is Sue Hawk. I don't think anything will ever enter the pantheon of the snakes and rats speech. And, you know, maybe it is part of, uh, maybe part of that is just how many eyeballs were on it and the fact that it was season one and it kind of set the tone for what jury speeches could be uh, going forward. But I still, I, I feel like if that had happened in season four or season five, we would still very regularly be pointing at that speech as in a tier of its own as far as the entire history of survivor jury makeups go uh, i personally think that like from a functionality perspective if the vote is up in the air in any way which again it virtually never is uh, i don't think any outcome has ever changed in the history of survivor based on questions and answers at final tribal council, maybe the vote margin changed, but I don't think the result has ever changed at final tribal council. If we were though, to accept the idea that this is intended as a chance for the finalists to plead their cases and claim their victory, as Jeff was so fond of saying, I would be strongly in support of, allowing jurors to talk on more than one subject and go back and forth with people repeatedly over the course of that conversation to such an extent that like, I don't think one juror gets up and says their piece and asks their questions uh, one at a time. And then they go sit back down and can't say anything ever again. 
Uh, I don't think those two models are even comparable in terms of what is going to make for a more engaging, not necessarily more engaging, but a more meritocratous, whatever the word would be. Uh, kind meritocratic. Of meritocratic, thank you. Uh, conversation. If we, if we are actually trying to get to the bottom of stuff and find a deserving winner, as far as I'm concerned, it's a no-brainer that you should be able to talk for a little bit on this subject and then hear other people and then bring something else up later uh, if you want, if you're a juror there. But granting that very little is ever going to change based on what is said at final travel council, I will definitely acknowledge that each juror having their moment in the spotlight to get whatever they want off their chest uh, is going to make for more memorable kind of TV moments. And perhaps that is really what we are going for at final travel council. I mean, if, if the point here is the vast majority of the time, final travel itself is a form of theater because the outcome is predetermined, then what use is it to allow people to methodically go through their game in a very like college essay style way, as opposed to giving people on the other side of the fence the chance to vent their spleen in a way that might actually lead to to good moments and, and good TV. I think the point uh, uh, is, Jeff, the same way that it seemed like he's been very eager to establish you have to earn the merge and you have to earn your spot at the final five and start all over and build a new camp. There, I, I think he said three or four times. Final Travel Council is about claiming your victory and I think actually framing it in terms of like defending your thesis uh, is a good way of putting it. Where like I think he and just the producers at large want to make sure that this final 20 or so minutes before we get the big winner reveal is essentially a point-by-point point breakdown of why the eventual winner deserves to win, and this is more conducive to that, of separating it into, here's what I did socially, here's what I did strategically, here's what I did physically, and I'm going back and forth with a bunch of people uh, more than once to talk through all of those separate ideas. I think that helps, like, in the producers' minds, establish not only for the TV audience, here's the, the winner's kind of final uh, march to victory and why you should be rooting for them too. But I also think part of why they want to format it this way is for any jurors who may be on the fence, we want them thinking about why they should be voting for someone. Uh, and this is a way of letting the most deserving people make their state uh, state their cases in uh, a way that will get us the jury votes we are ho cast in directions that we are hoping for. I, I, I don't know. I think it's also a missed opportunity in the sense that if you had someone who was great TV for most of the game until they're uh, untimely blindside at some point, then that's sad, you've lost them, but you, you get to see their jury reactions for the rest of the season with the hope that when the finale rolls around, they're going to have their one final moment in the sun. And if they have some great set-piece speech or they're going back and forth with one of the, the finalists, then that gets to be a nice additional 
moment to their story. And so, you know, last season, if if we had the old uh, just stand up and say your piece format, then may- maybe we get another great like Ricard moment or Shan moment, or we get more from these people who drove so much of the action for most of the season. Whereas now they just join like this formless mass of jury members and they're just, you know, they're, they're one more person on that panel. I think one major issue is just airtime because the answer is suddenly dawning on me in a perfect world. They would just do both. We would start with the jurors giving their individual kind of jury assessments and then the finalists can get into the social and strategic and physical elements uh, that they want to present and the jurors can have more opportunity to talk to them. But I think just from a TV perspective, it just doesn't work that way. And if airtime were not an issue and like audience attention span were not an issue, it would be by far the best case scenario to just include both of those elements as far as I'm concerned. It did not seem to me like this finale was having to scramble to find time for everything. It felt like there was a lot of, especially with the set up to the final five vote, uh, we, we didn't need to have that that twist and that search for the advantage and so on in the first place. And th- there was a lot of, not wasted time, but just, you know, suffrage. If you had to slim this down to a uh, a highlight reel, you, you could very easily leave on the cutting room floor. So it, it feels like unless you have some edge of extinction style thing which is its own animal but where you you really need every minute you can get your hands on then i i think you can manage it i I think that there's there's time to be had there i think we are living in fantasy land thinking that that is a realistic possibility to ever happen in the future but that would certainly be the dream as far as i'd be concerned where we can get the best of both of those worlds um one other thing dom uh after we get our winner marianne ultimately crowned here we have yet another on-site reunion and not only are we going to be having an on-site reunion this season and i don't think that's a big shock because of you know all of the covid precautions that they were very smart to take into consideration about the uncertainty of just the world at large by the time this finale would be airing it sounds like the producers are really into this idea for the foreseeable future if not like permanently in terms of as soon as the votes are cast we're just going to come back out we're going to read them and we're going to do the reunion if you want to call it that uh right there in fiji and i know that a lot of people really like to see the live like LA or New York reunions where it's months after the fact and we get the live winner reveal and everyone's all dressed up and we get to see what they look like uh, these days. And Brad Culpepper randomly shaves his mustache and fun stuff like that. Uh, I think I'm actually going to come down hard on the other side of that for frankly, a couple of different reasons. And let me begin just by saying the one thing I really don't like about this format compared to the live reunion months after the fact is I do miss getting to see the pre-merge people again. But given that the pre-merge people are off in some other country by this point uh, at like final travel council day, and unfortunately, given how little it feels like the average pre-merger would probably have to add that would make air for any sort of reunion situation here, 
I'm a, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make if it means no more celebrities that we have to interview, no more terrible CBS show cross promotion, no little kids, and perhaps most crucially, as far as I'm concerned, although no little kids is probably most crucial, uh, but they're also very crucial for me. I like that we're getting a lot less Jeff at these live reunions these days and nothing against Jeff in general. I think Jeff continues to do an excellent job as host and moderator of the show, maybe a little less so as like game designer, but that's another subject for another time. Uh, but Jeff, it feels like takes up a huge percentage of the airtime at those live reunions. And to say nothing, by the way, of the various points at which we cut back to Jeff as the finale itself is airing and we spend a few minutes with him intermittently that comes out of the actual finale content I'm interested in seeing uh, all of those factors together sign me up for this permanent switch to on-site reunions even knowing that people are going to have mouths full of pizza and champagne uh, at like TV awkward sorts of times I feel like we are gaining way more than we are essentially in the form of addition by subtraction the no Sia no Kevin Hart no Drew Carey no little kids again uh, I, I feel like this is a huge improvement for my money and furthermore they have so much more flexibility with the time in this format as well they do. And I, I the, the only downside to me is I think that that live finale many months after the fact is a good chance for people to actually get some kind of closure on the whole experience uh, and to uh, maybe see people again who, if left with their own devices, they're not going out of their way to go across the states to meet up with each other or whatever. But when they have this uh, kind of enforced opportunity to run into each other then okay it's, it's kind of nice to see them again um so i think for the cast members just having that actual formal reunion does serve some kind of use for the rest of us though i think this is basically just a stroked upgrade and i'm i'm very glad that uh circumstances force this upon them and that they have seen fit to, to carry this forward into the future right uh and yeah i I'm clearly only presenting this from my own selfish opinion. I don't care about these people. I don't care about them getting to reunite uh, after like they have no issue. It seems like flying all over the place to meet up with each other if they actually want to see those people. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of this change. Uh, so actually in kind of relatively breaking news, although it's probably a few days old at this point, even though she was not able to attend the live uh, on-site reunion, Sia did still find her way onto this season, uh, at least on like social media, where I'm guessing most people out there have heard about this by now, but in case anyone hasn't, Drea from uh, season 42 ended up getting $100,000 from Sia, just like in the form of a one or two minute long Twitter video, which, first of all, Good for Drea. That's awesome. Uh, but every single time this happens, and I know Steven has talked about this a few times on Know-It-Alls as well, it really does feel like a borderline dystopian future situation to me where various celebrities, and in this case it's just Sia, uh, although I'm sure if other, you know, if Tyler Perry wanted to drop a bag on someone, I don't think any of the Survivor cast members would object to that, uh, 
how much fucking money does Sia have? Where she's got to be at least like 500,000 into just like giving it to people from reality TV that she really likes or feels uh, like deserves it for one reason or another. It, it is borderline scary to me that this is like a recurring thing on Survivor. But again, very happy for Drea. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I, I cannot get myself into the headspace of just deciding to just airdrop, you know, $100,000, like more money than I've touched in my life and, you know, several years of salary at any conceivable point in my life to uh, just be able to do that in such a cavalier way. It's like, I mean... I guess good for her that she can do it and good for any of the lucky beneficiaries. Although there have got to be some people who feel like they are Sia's natural constituency who have not received this and are thinking like, what am I, am I chopped liver? Like, <laughs> what did I do wrong to not uh, get this, uh, you know, this blessing uh, from the heavens there? I do wonder if it's potentially a good thing, not only for my own personal taste, but like for the game itself that Sia is not able to do this and make like a production out of it at all of the live finales anymore, because I mean, we are getting to the point, I think she gave away like over 200,000 to the, to a couple people, three people on Island of the Idols. Like I think it was Jamal got a little bit and then Elaine. And I want to say like Janet or someone else each got a hundred thousand. And like, it is clearly at the point where, much like we saw with the Sprint fan favorite for a while, just getting the Sia prize could potentially be worth more than any outcome in the game other than winning. And I think it would be very bad for the show if people were out there actively playing to get the Sia prize, because it's so much better than anything short of first place. I, I like that, you know, occasionally people are getting hooked up with life-changing money and that's awesome in theory, but I think it would be very bad if that were to become uh, like a known thing that every cast could count on. So good for Drea, but also good for us. I think that this is not having a spectacle made out of it on CBS in prime time year after year anymore. Uh, Dom, speaking of actually Drea and the jury and so forth, I certainly am not well-versed on the details here, but I have heard rumblings that there was some sort of, like, Ponderosa beef that, again, I know very little about what actually went down here, and I don't even know how many people we've actually gotten to hear from, like, firsthand about this, but it does seem like, even though this cast, on the surface, appears to get along pretty well for the most part, uh, there may have been some bad blood there that people may be hearing more about in the not-too-distant future as more of this exit press comes out. Yeah, Oma basically uh, saying that Drea was very extreme in how she treated him uh, when he arrived there, and it, CBS apparently is going to quite some lengths to hush up talk of this. Like, Rob had to delete certain segments from his interviews with Omer or, wow. or whatever. And I, I don't believe that Dre has responded to it explicitly um, or that anyone else who was there, like, well, okay. So I, I think Chanel a while back was uh, kind of previewing, oh, there's some tea from Ponderosa that's going to come out after the season. And we were all very excited for that to drop to find out what it is. Now that it, it has kind of dropped and it's all 
very messy. It's like, I don't know if we actually should have been so excited for this to happen in the first place. Like, maybe it being this uncomfortable is just how it's going to be a lot of the time, and our insatiable need for drama is probably not healthy and maybe contributes to that in some way. In any case, um, yeah, it's all very, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I'm very, I don't know virtually anything about like the details surrounding it. I have honestly been kind of checked out from Survivor for the last week or so with just a, a lot going on in my own real life there. And I certainly don't want to paint anyone unfairly along the way here, but it is, it sounds like there was at least something going on there that not everyone may have, uh, heard about to this point, but there, I don't know if it's going to be anytime soon, or it sounds like uh, if CBS is going out of their way to kind of sweep it under the rug at the time, maybe literally never. Uh, but it did appear to me like there may have been some juicy scoops to be had. It's, it remains unclear whether or not we'll ever actually have them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Dom, I feel like, uh, you know, we've talked at great length at this point about the finale itself, the cast itself, uh, Marianne as our winner, herself and just wanted to one final time commend the casting department overall for not just this season but last season as well uh we said it during 41 i think the exact same is true at least for me of 42 that i would pretty much be down to have almost literally anyone from either of those two casts back as an eventual returnee on Survivor whenever the time comes that they end up wanting to go that route uh, again as far as like returnee seasons go. If you had to narrow it down, I would be curious to hear which three people from this cast do you most want to see back? Hmm. I would say, I would actually say Mike, I think, just in terms of how unconventional that archetype is and by archetype i guess i just mean old person but also uh <laughs> you know he's the jersey guy and people from jersey and or canada are just absurdly overpowered at survivor as it turns out um and i thought he was both very rootable but also i think like his eventual downfall on the season was pretty fascinating i, I think mike would be uh fun to see play again marianne of course uh was great the first time. I think it would be even more fun to watch the second time. And then I actually am not sure who I would nominate for that final slot. Uh, I mean, you could invite Omar back and he'd be, uh, I'm sure, a very active player and and so on. But in in a way, I feel like he is more replaceable or interchangeable uh, than a lot of the other people on this list. So Omar is, if I were narrowing it down to three... Omer, I think, would definitely be in my three, although I do get what you're saying. Uh, and I furthermore, I know we talked about this a little bit in the episode where Omer ended up being eliminated. I feel like the cat is kind of out of the bag on Omer, and it wouldn't necessarily go great for him if he were to uh, come back. I feel like people would be on such high alert to of like having seen oh my god he had everyone snowed uh except for marianne near the end there on his original season and i don't want that to happen to me so he there as much as i loved omer and everything he brought to this season there may actually be like less returnee value there than may appear on the surface uh high was a name that came to mind for me as someone i would really like to see back drea for sure uh chanel i feel like probably could have brought a lot more to a season 
had circumstances broken a little differently for her there. And then I'm going to give as a kind of bonus fourth person here, a classic Dom Harvey edgelord uh, of extinction take here. I would like to see Jenny back on a future season. I don't know how likely that is, but I feel like she was a robbed goddess this time around and could certainly bring a lot to the table if given an op- another opportunity. You know what? Uh, Jenny <laughs> might be the new Kelly Wentworth for me. I think we might be going Jenny down yeah, we we might be going there. I really thought you were going to be uh, pushing hard for Lydia here, which uh, I would be somewhat in for, I think. But um, yeah, I, I think High would actually be a better choice than Oma insofar as High is like maybe not as effective as Oma, but that's good. Like High is messier in every sense of the word. And that's kind of what I want in in that archetype where like if I want to find a competent strategist like okay well there are lots of those to go around and unclear how good tv that necessarily is but if i want to find someone like hi who is playing hard and is pretty good at it but also could very easily come undone by his own excesses or whatever then that that to me is the perfect recipe so uh give me high and give me lots more highs ideally butting heads with each other on uh, future seasons all right uh dom let me ask you this sight unseen on Survivor 43. I have a couple of things here that I'm curious what you think uh, in terms of will we see these back on Survivor 43? Just to get, you know, one last opportunity to humiliate ourselves with calls that immediately prove totally wrong here. Dom, do you think we're going to see the amulets back on season 43? A twist that I actually really liked, even though it didn't pay off super well here. At this point, I guess I just assume that a twist like that will return. Like the the average marginal twist is just uh it is coming back until Jeff wakes up one day and has this change of heart or reaches some conclusive verdict on it. It feels like a lot of these are just uh just part of the recipe now and until something happens to dislodge them. Do you think the hourglass is part of the recipe? Sadly, yes. Uh I I mean I, I don't know if you can have a clearer record of failure necessarily than <laughs> looking at it over the past two seasons. But like to me, that confirms its longevity even further. Like after that, if it comes back for 43, then what would need for ha- to happen for them to, to go back on it? I, yeah, 43, I think is going to be a lit, big litmus test for the hourglass. If we see it again, I, I would uh, feel like it's going to potentially be like a staple for a long time to come, but I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot less, uh, like hype around it is the wrong way. Like when the players out there know that the hourglass is something that has happened, I feel like a lot of the shine comes off. Although, you know, if they're being offered the opportunity, to, uh, you could be the person who goes and smashes the hourglass. I, I think the evolution of the hourglass, if there is indeed one to be had, uh, is going to be one of the bigger tells as far as season 43 is concerned in terms of what we can expect beyond that. Uh, knowledge is power. I don't even I don't know if we're going to even necessarily see this twist back again. But I think the fact that the people on at least these next couple of seasons casts are going to be on high alert that a knowledge is power could be out there is going to be a difference maker, whether it's back or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if I had to lock in a call one direction or the other, I would say that the knowledge is power does come back uh, in the next couple of seasons. And then a wild card here, Dom, when we show up for season 43, 
is Jeff going to still have the mullet or will he have gotten a haircut? I feel like all bets are off at this point, and it, there was a lot of uh, comforting continuity in Jeff and his demeanor and his appearance over the course of many years as the host of the show. And it feels like now it's a uh, you know, new year, new Jeff. We, we really have no idea what he's going to show up with next time. I do. I feel like at this point, it might be kind of an awkward transition to like cut his hair and go back to dyeing it. I think we could be at the beginning of later era Jeff, although to quickly return to something you said about Mike, and I will say it about Jeff as well, 57 is not old by any stretch as far as I'm concerned. 57 is the new 35, uh, and I say that as someone who is himself turning 35 in a few weeks here, so I'm very much talking myself into the mentality that 35 is now the new 21, and I will not be told otherwise. Uh, Dom, what else? Do we, we skip over anything super critical as far as you're concerned? I'm just doing the math and realizing, wow, you were 24 when we, huh? I was. Yeah, wow. You were, I mean, you were 18 <laughs> when we started this Well, we podcast. don't need to go into that. That's, that's insane. Uh, that's, a, that, that's a problematic age gap right there. That's yeah, that so, yeah, I was grooming Dom. All right, shouldn't even joke. Uh, anyway, Dom, another relatively awesome, if not overtly awesome season in the books here. Uh, so glad that we could come back in here and wrap up everything from 42 loved so much, uh, about how all of this went down, Loved getting to talk to you along the way. And we now have a bit of an off season on our hands. I'm sure we will be back in here with some no more lockies in the not too distant future, probably some other yes. uh, kind of one-off stuff intermittently as well. Uh, and furthermore, over on the patron feed, as Dom uh, referenced a little while ago at this point, we are just about done. We have only the finale left on Survivor Gabon, and we'll be getting to that in uh, the next couple of days or so, I hope, uh, so we can put the the, uh, the final touches on that there and then begin our next Patreon season, which this now that it's the off season, now that uh, summer is here and we have a lot less going on personal life wise, I'm very excited that we can finally get back more regularly into the patron zone. And we actually just before we came on air here for this very podcast decided where we are going to be going after Gabon. Uh, Dom, tell the people what we have coming up next. Uh, we are going backwards, I suppose, because uh, we are going from uh, Gabon to Micronesia, uh, a season which uh, for a long time and I think still is held up as one of the all-time greats, one of the the big important seasons in the Survivor canon, uh, rightly or wrongly. And I guess we can get into that uh, as we get through it. And I'm kind of surprised we haven't got to it before now. It feels like one of the, the natural runs that people either would have voted for or that we would have just decided ourselves with our supreme executive authority that we would have covered. And so uh, this feels like a, a long overdue choice, and I'm excited to get into yet another uh, Micronesia rewatch here. Yeah, I mean, I think we have wanted historically, you, we, you know, we've done some of the, the heaviest hitters of all time. We've done Heroes versus Villains over there, Kageyan rewatch. Uh, over there and we've also i think wanted to kind of pay some attention to the lesser regarded seasons that we have uh personally been big fans of such as gabon uh china fiji guatemala things of that nature but uh yeah micronesia it feels like a perfect time to get in a more kind of consensus fan favorite that we can really focus on and dig in on 
during this Survivor off season. So if you would be interested in that sort of thing, along with the, at this point, uh, easy triple digit number of bonus episodes, probably 200 ish, uh, that we have over on the Patreon feed, patreon.com slash Dom and Colin. Uh, so stoked to wrap up Gabon and dive in on Micronesia. Dom, you were on Twitter at Dom HRV. I am on Twitter at Colin Stone. You can email the show, incidentally, domandcolin at gmail.com if there's anything you feel like uh, could be brought to our attention to cover this off season. I actually, incidentally, have heard word that there may be a new kind of cool Korean show that has just come out that I'm going to be checking out, and I will keep you guys posted on that, Dom. Uh, I believe it's called The Black Sheep Game, just to put that one out there. Uh, into the universe, and we'll see what becomes of that, if anything. Uh, anything else that you feel like we need to be getting to today? Uh, no, I think that covers it. I believe I am good as well. So thank you, everyone who has made it this far, for sticking with us here. We will talk to you guys very soon. Take care, everybody.